Hi, and welcome to Season 2 of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. After the successful launch of our first 10 episodes, I'm delighted to host another series of discussions about urban issues in the Toronto region. We have a terrific lineup of conversations with many exceptional guests, so keep listening to the podcast and feel free to post your comments. We'd love to get your feedback. To kick off this season, we're going to talk about Toronto urbanism and what sets it apart from other cities. As the fastest-growing urban region in North America, Toronto's unique identity and ongoing success are often attributed to its incredibly diverse culture and talent, excellent public institutions, entrepreneurial spirit, and extensive natural features. And as it continues to grow, the city finds itself on the leading edge of exciting new developments, propelled by innovative thinking in technology, energy efficiency, public transit, and placemaking, to name just a few. To talk about the city's burgeoning success, I'm joined by Cindy Rotenberg-Walker, partner at Urban Strategies, an internationally recognized planning and design firm here in Toronto, and co-chair of ULI Toronto's upcoming symposium on Toronto urbanism. Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I want to lead this discussion by shedding light on a couple of promotional videos about Toronto. The first is a short one-minute video that Tourism Toronto released about a year ago called The Views Are Different Here. And it's, a, it's different than anything I've seen in the past. It's edgy, it's fast-paced, and very hip, and paints a picture of a city that is very proud of its tolerance and diversity. It's a promotional video with real swagger. And similarly, your firm and ULI Toronto recently produced a video called No Accidental City, showcasing Toronto's great attributes and strengths. So first off, let's just talk a little bit about that video. Why is it called No Accidental City? <laughs> That's such a great question, and it was the topic of a lot of debate. Um, so I think you probably are getting the pun that's being played. So it's a pun on Robert Fulford's book from about 25 years that's ago what I on figured. Accidental City. And, but I think that, like everything, the truth is somewhere in between, between accident and intention, you know, coincidence and, and good fortune versus the fortune that you make. Um, so I think that there were, the jury was still out when the, when the video was named. Obviously, we couldn't call it an accidental city. That, that's taken. Um, but I, I think that really it uh, is a reflection on the fact that Toronto has been the recipient of a lot of really interesting, um, happy coincidences but at the same time has worked really proactively to actually make the best of those coincidences. So I think that, you know, like my grandmother always used to say, the, lucky, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. that there's a little bit of a, of a kind so you're of saying theme it's, that it, runs. It's making opportunities for itself. Yeah, yeah. Like in fact, actually, I was just I just had a conversation with um, one of my partners, Joe Barrett, not that long ago about uh, Robert Fulford's book. Um, and, you know, he uses a couple of examples there, which, you know, one is the CN Tower, which is the absolute, you know, icon of Toronto. I think that uh, that's pretty much if there's one thing that people associate with Toronto, it is the CN Tower, which was not intentional. You know, it came out of CN in Montreal. It uh, was not even really something that was, had, you know, had any kind of zoning permission. It just happened. And so happenstance defines uh, identity. 
So that's another, um, that's one of the kind of really interesting pieces of that. But then on the other side are some of the planning initiatives that really were the beginning. You know, I'm really fortunate to be part of this firm founded by people who had their history in the city and city planning in a time that was really focused on urbanism. And um, when was that? When did that start? The firm was established. That's a really good question. Something more than 30 years ago, because I've been here almost 30 years. So it'll be somewhere in the order of about 35 years ago, I guess. Um, but one of the other examples is the St. Lawrence neighborhood, which I think, again, still stands the test of time as a you know, really bold idea to create by design an income-integrated community um, to find ways to promote the, the various levels of government agenda for um, socially-assisted housing, but to do so in an income-integrated neighborhood to put um, schools and parks, you know, right in. In fact, actually, to make the schools share space, it's you know an example that we're still having a hard time getting back to. But there's another one coming. So I think that that's the the kind of you know backstory to you know is Toronto's success an accident? Um, you know, and I think there's lots of other things we could talk about on that on that theme. But the reason we made that video was actually for the last ULI symposium. So it was... Um, Which was called Electric Cities. It was <laughs> called Electric Cities. Mm-hmm. And it was, that's a nice little coincidence. It was, uh, I think, building on the Toronto, the, um, the economic development video that you talked about. It was, I think, that the other thing that might be part of Toronto's success in a funny way, but is definitely one of the characteristics, is just the humility. You know, we don't, you know, we rank in all these world initiatives, you know, top, you know, in terms of economic impact, top innovation center, top resilience um, indicator, top livability. Um, I don't know, the list goes on. And that's really what that video was built around is mm-hmm. that so you use the word swagger. You know, I think really it was an intentional opportunity to boast a little bit about everything that is fantastic about Toronto and to put it all in one place in a kind of high-paced um, environment. So it's it's um, it's time that we finally, you know, pound our chest and say we're actually a really great city. Yeah. It's um, the times where we're a little bit modest and um, didn't have the kind of confidence that we have now. This is, this yeah. is a, 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 an attempt to really showcase that. Yeah. Um, So what are the themes then that are presented in the video and and how does that relate with uh, the symposium that's coming up? Okay, so so this symposium builds on a lot of the same themes. I think it's still an opportunity to showcase everything that is truly worth celebrating about Toronto. So, you know, obviously diversity is the thing that everybody points to and I fundamentally believe is one of the most... uh, key characteristics of Toronto's character today and and really the kind of turning point for its uh, success to date and I assume also well into the future. I think that's a key. So that's one of the things that's uh, highlighted there, you know, the energy and vitality that that level of diversity brings in terms of the cultural offerings we have here, the food scene we have, you know, just the kind of entrepreneurial spirit that underpins everything that matters. Um, it talked, I think, I'm going by recall, but it talked a lot about uh, livability. So obviously people tout the city's neighborhoods. But one of the things I'm really excited about, and so by that they usually refer to the low-density neighborhoods. But what I'm really excited about is the city is creating brand new you know, high-rise neighborhoods. And that's an example of a theme that we're really pulling on for this upcoming symposium. So a lot of it was sort of the roots were in that last symposium. Um, and I'll come back, but you asked about what some of the other themes were. Resiliency, I think you touched on that in your introduction. You know, Toronto has a, a long history, you know, right back to Hurricane Hazel. 
Right. In terms of the, all of the, the tragedy that, uh, that resulted from that uh, early experience with a massive storm event. And the really great thing that came out of it was the establishment of the conservation authorities, which are still an absolutely unique um, and impactful entity that is helping us stay at the front end you know, of this, uh, this concept of resiliency. You know, how you actually manage, but more importantly, how you're not too heavily impacted by major events, in this case, weather events, which we're experiencing more and more. Um, and, and the whole idea of ecosystem management, you know, things that came forward, you know, by the amazing David Crombie, all of the various different things that he built on in terms of thinking about things from a systems perspective. So. So again, just an introduction to that, you know, the whole innovation, Toronto being one of the most active technology centers in the world. So again, that's just pointed to in a really brief way. Um, efforts, and I think you raised this again at the beginning, the investment that's being made in transit. You know, it's one of the biggest transit building programs in the world. You know, some people would tell you it's just because we haven't done anything for a really long time and we're still really busy catching up, which I... I would agree with, but but still, good things are happening, and better late than never. Yeah. Um, quality of life overall, I think, again, is is the the key thing. And then, I think one of the other major points in that video was just looking at across the region the range of placemaking um, efforts that are happening. You know, looking at obviously the massive program of rebuilding on the waterfront. But equally interesting, what's happening up at Vaughan Metropolitan Center? So, which is building around the creating new a center station. from yeah. yeah, creating a center from uh, from parking lots and and uh, you know big box retail areas. So I think that the you, you asked you know how does that that original video set the tone for this symposium? So I think all of those themes we're still pulling on. Um, but one of the really fun things about this symposium is that it's, uh, I forget what their brand is, Conference on Wheels, I think. <laughs> um, and so you really want to get out in the field and see how all of this is playing out. And that's what uh, the co-chairs and I are really excited working with uh, the ULI administration. Just how do you take that showcase of Toronto but actually go out and see things? You know, one of the final... Um, uh, statements, I think, in that video is Toronto is a global city, but intensely local, right. something like yeah. that. And I think that's why you, you want to go out and see it. That's why to really the, experience to really, it, and yeah, understand what it is you're yeah. you're trying to convey, and talking about what's working and what's not. Because you know, even though I think there's still so much room for boasting, I think that the other thing that we are particularly good at is problem solving and not shying away from concerns that are on the horizon. So I think that's part of the kind of discussion that we're hoping to facilitate. In so what, when you mean, what do you mean by we are really good at problem solving? Is that everyone in the industry or are there certain uh, I think, politicians? I think that, um, I, so my perspective is it comes from the fact that people love their city. They love the city. And so I think that there's a caretaking kind of mentality that uh, underpins Pretty much everybody who lives here, um, people who work here, people who visit, obviously. So I, to me, that means that there's just a careful monitoring that goes on, that if things are going off track in any combination of ways or reasons, that we want to get on it. You know, there's not too much of an ostrich mentality in this <laughs> city. It's my view, anyway. <laughs> so I think we're pretty opportunistic. Very good. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about how, and I think we're going to get back to some of those mm -hmm. themes later in the discussion, but I'm, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on how did Toronto emerge to become the superstar city mm -hmm. that it is? Um, okay. 
and you've touched upon it a little bit, but what are the fundamentals that you think that have um, laid the foundation for Toronto's continued growth and success? Okay. Well, I think it all starts with immigration. With you know, immigration. We, we talk about diversity, and that's a direct result of immigration. You know, I think that there were a set of events that happened in the 60s and 70s that that really converged. Uh, I think So I think we've had kind of two real clusters of opportunity that have defined the city. Um, the first being in the 60s and 70s, I think beginning with the Federal Immigration Act, which really looked you know, far beyond Europe and open Toronto and Canada up to the world. Um, but because people, you know, I when I was in graduate school, one of my research pieces is just the, the nature of kinship networks. And so people immigrate to where family already exists or where, um, you know, friends of families uh, some through some village connection are here. So that, that kind of just builds on success, I think. And again, that's what we're seeing. That's what we're bearing the, the real fruits of now is that sort of a generation ago, that uh, opening up of Toronto. And now these kinship networks are so strong um, as poles, kind of the gravity that's bringing so much of those um, international populations here. So I think that was major. Um, I'm reminded, you know, my partner, Andrea Gabor, um, was one of the examples of um, the Montreal expats. So after the separatist uh, ascension to uh, government, there was a kind of massive outflow of young urban professionals in particular. English speaking. English speaking, right. yes, exactly. Um, but uh, I'm told that at that time, Toronto and Montreal were really kind of equal powerhouse cities um, and that that really tipped things in Toronto's favor and so that's good for Toronto you know I think most people from an objective perspective would say it's good for Canada to not be dividing you know efforts and interests so much in terms of a world financial center and a business center but it's an example to what we were talking about you know that's happenstance that's not anything that Toronto did but it's an opportunity that it ran with and consolidated um, so I think those were the early events, but uh, I think there have been other things like this, the last, you know, what we're seeing now in the last decade, I think also is just a perfect confluence of events. So we had the world financial crisis. Um, Toronto in particular became a safe haven for well, Canada generally, but uh, Toronto, Vancouver um, became safe havens for um, investment in real estate in particular, which had a wonderful timing convergence with the uh, provincial governments introduction of places to grow and a whole um, set of policy intentions to control sprawl. Um, that obviously coincided with the demographic shift, both an aging of the population and even more importantly, the millennial generation and just a whole interest in urban living. So another one of these happenstances, but um, by which uh, it can obviously work really fantastically. You can make more of those coincidences or you can kind of lose the energy of it. So, so yeah, I think there's lots of things. Examples of the Kings, you know, that opening up um, downtown is a really flexible place for people to live. So and that work. was under so, Barbara. Late, uh, yeah. So that was before. Mayor. That would have been a kind of step in between, yeah. I guess, some of those things. That uh, so it's this lovely interplay between intention and accident. Right. Um, so I guess Toronto really started to become this uh, superstar city. If, uh, maybe there's a better term for that. Would you say shortly after the financial collapse in 2008? Yeah, in I think so. It's what it feels like, yeah. definitely, especially in comparison to so many other Because I places. remember yeah. growing up in this city, 
politicians would sometimes use the term world-class city. Mm-hmm. And I often, I would listen to that and I always thought it was a bit of a stretch because again, you know, as a, as a modest Torontonian, mm-hmm. I, um, never thinking that we really were world-class, although mm-hmm. maybe the CN Tower was enough mm-hmm. to put us on the mat. But now it really does feel like mm-hmm. we are world-class, yeah. especially with all these rankings that are coming out yeah. where Toronto is in yeah. the top 10 of so many different yeah. rankings. On like a whole spectrum of things. I think that's what's the most important. If we were just on the lead of one ranking, that wouldn't be such a fantastic story. But yeah. So how do we... How do we compare to other similar sized cities in North America? What are some of the, the differences that we have that have helped lift Toronto above the rest? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously, there you can compare within Canada in terms of Canada's biggest cities. So I think that Toronto, as we've already talked about, you know, our primary distinction is just the, the business and finance center. Um, you know, lots of people would argue that Vancouver has a different and some people would say better quality of life just in terms of its natural setting. And um, but I think that it's the, in the Canadian context, I think what makes Toronto particularly interesting is is all of the things that we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. It's uh, We've got nature. It's mm-hmm. not Rockies, but we've got some pretty good nature. Mm-hmm. We've got amazing culture. We've got a really strong uh, technology sector. Uh, we've talked about those things. So so I think that the comparison within Canada is easier. But um, looking at American cities, you know, one of the things that we are pretty conscious of is that we're verging. We're in the top four in terms of population in North America, so Chicago. Uh, Los Angeles, New York. We're already neck and neck or maybe even slightly ahead of Chicago pretty quickly. I think about 25, 30 years we're going to surpass the population of Los Angeles. You know, we probably won't quite come up to New York for a while, but so, so that's pretty impactful, um, but I think one of the things that really distinguishes Toronto from Los Angeles, as an example, if you want to think about it, and again, it's obvious, is just the intensely urban living that we have been embracing. And I think that's really exciting just in terms of uh, all of the things that we care about, you know, living with, you know, less possessions, the whole exciting um, trend to families staying in the city of Toronto, which is something, again, that Vancouver does really well, but it's really starting to happen here. And I think that's just phenomenal. So so are yeah. those, uh, all those indexes that are coming out, is that, is that how we're measuring our success? Um, or are there other ways? Is it population growth? Um, yeah, number I think, of cranes that well, are being... different people measure different things, sure. right? Not everybody thinks the number of cranes is, is, is a good measure of success, but certainly it means that people want to be here, and that, to me, is a huge measure of success. Um, I think that, at the end of the day, is what really matters. And, you know, initially, the cranes were for, for residential buildings. That was what started this whole boom, but now I think what's what's even more amazing is the number of cranes that are for employment uses. So for office the, employment. Yeah, yeah, this massive infusion of uh, state-of-the-art office buildings that are coming back into the core. You know, jobs follow housing, and I think that that... Uh, so that's a really big measure of success. Obviously, the whole ability to live and work in a really tight geography, you know, getting away even from needing to use transit, you know, the fact that you can walk and and cycle so easily within a tight urban footprint is a pretty distinct Toronto characteristic, you know, particularly downtown. And what we're seeing now is just the beginning of, if you're thinking back to the No Accidental City video, there's an amazing um, projection forward in terms of the intensification that's still coming. 
Um, but I also think what's really important, at least under this set of policy regulations, which I really hope uh, stand the test of time in terms which, of where we're at now. Which policy regulations? So the, the nested set of uh, places to grow, the Greenbelt Act, um, you know, the, the, all the you know, kind of look the. Um, I can't remember what the Climate Change Act is called, but anyway, so everything is looking at compact uh, and you know best use of existing land and, and infrastructure before we start again in greenfield situations. So, so I think that that's really important. It's not just in downtown. We're seeing it uh, play out along avenues and centers, both planned and unintended centers. You know, the whole reimagining of the malls that used to anchor many of the centers, like uh, Scarborough Town. Center, Mississauga Square One, you know, everything that's happening just in terms of the robust level of urbanism that uh, is playing out there. Again, this whole idea of living and working and shopping in a really tight geography if you want. Um, but then obviously also creating the mobility infrastructure that you can Well, let, go let's other expand places. on that, just how development is, is just really taking a leading edge or it's cutting edge or in some ways it's it's we're seeing some really innovative approaches to development um urban uh urban strategies is a planning and design Mm -hmm. firm and you do a lot of master planning for a lot of uh big developers and governments um what are some of some of the innovative approaches you're seeing to master planning yeah Great. That's a great question. Um, and you're right, we have an opportunity to be involved in some pretty amazing things. But I think that uh, probably some of the projects that are most front of mind are the what I call convergence projects. So things like East Harbor or Choice Reits Land. So East Harbor, so is, East Harbor is the, the first one. Gulf, uh, the old Unilever site. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so yeah, well, well, we can just spend a little bit of time on that. So that is uh, major employment. Move. I think it's about 10 million square. Oops, 10 million square feet of uh, office. A really significant retail and and sort of cultural piece as well. But it's the opportunity, like planners like to talk about, just to solve a whole lot of issues by re-knitting that site into the urban fabric. So crossing Lecture Boulevard, you know, providing the right context to take down that eastern end of the Gardner. Um, basically creating the front door to the portlands. So instead of being a kind of marginal, hard-to-access, amazing future waterfront community, they're now just an extension of the regular city. Um, But the reason I call it a convergence project is it's also the um, sorting out the multiple levels of transit infrastructure. So there'll be go service. There will hopefully be, um, uh, what do we call the the uh, downtown relief line? So the the big U subway line. All of that's intended to converge in that site and needs to be thought through and really just introduce public um, infrastructure. And so that's one of the key themes in the symposium that you talked about. One of our sessions there. Is, is featuring projects like um, East Harbor and uh, the other project I mentioned at Dundas and Bloor, but it's really on the topic of the nexus between private business and public interest. And, and so that hadn't been done as much... Uh, in the past? it's. I think that it um, certainly has been happening in smaller ways for a long time, um, like the negotiation of community benefits through private development applications to do things like improve streetscapes or you know, enhance park spaces. So this idea of a joint agenda between the public and private sectors I think actually Toronto has been doing better than most for a long time. It, it again, is just a sort of opportunistic, but but um, uh, I think really successful approach. But just the scale of it is leveraging up now in terms of these really complex sites that 
are being rethought and renegotiated. So, so that's one example. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah, I think one of the other most fun projects that we're involved in um, is a policy project. It's called Growing Up. So it was for the city of Toronto. That was the client. And it was the idea of uh, coming back to the theme that I mentioned of families choosing to stay in their condominium communities. You know, how would we do, how would we design those, plan them and design them differently if we knew that they were for families? So, um, you know, most of our tower neighborhoods were never imagined for, for families. So, you know, St. Jamestown was built as a place for urban professionals, the whole ring of tower neighborhoods sort of in the in-between zones between downtown and the 401, also really aimed at young professionals with cars, you know, mobile. And the composition of families living there is very different. So um, one of the things that we're drilling in on in the symposium is, is this whole reimagining these high-rise neighborhoods. So we're going to go to three. You know, we're going to look at Thorncliffe Park. Um, actually, I think that may be in a slightly different theme, but all still the same important uh, um, question about how the communities who are living in these neighborhoods that were built 50 years ago, probably, are really transforming them. Um, and then brand new kind of efforts like at Parkway Forest on the Shepherd subway line at Shepherd and Don Mills, which is a whole infill around, you know, kind of tower in the park theory and the delivery of, of really significant new community infrastructure. There's a new community center and you know, public art and public so space. So is it reimagining existing um, infrastructure, existing buildings, or is it reimagining the way that we are building new high-rise So rise both cases. Okay. So yeah, so Thorncliffe Park is really reworking how community life happens, uh, both inside the buildings and in the public spaces around them. Parkway Forest is filling in all the vast empty public spaces with new um, housing. Even looking at City Place, you know, we're going to go there too, down on the former railway land, so across from Skydome, kind of the span um, at the railway, south of the railway corridor between Spadina and Bathurst. So um, only, what, 10, 15 years, I think, of, of construction by Concord Adex and now being fundamentally reimagined again as a family neighborhood. So it's one of the test cases for that growing up question about how do you build places at the scale of the apartment, at the scale of the building, in terms of what kind of resources. Maybe you don't need um, treadmills, you know, maybe you need playrooms. Uh, and then the neighborhood. And so uh, more and more developers are responding to that because yeah. they know that their uh, their market, their buyers yeah. are, are are now being forced to buy condos or um, not ground oriented housing, something a smaller yeah. space, something they can afford, but that can accommodate a yeah. family of one yeah. or two kids. Yeah. Um, so that's all packaged up in this this policy that yeah. you were developing for, yeah. for the city. Yeah, that's actually more about building new communities, but I think the theory uh, applies to retrofitting existing communities. I want to just touch a little bit on technology because yeah. it seems as if all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, the city has become this superstar city for tech investment. Yeah. Just the other week, Microsoft announced that they're they're going to be taking a bunch of floors yeah. at the new CIBC tower. Yeah. Um, Pinterest, uh, if that's how you pronounce it, is yeah. is going to be moving here. Uber, all the big Uber ones and are GM, uh, GM, and GM. Uh, Center out on the yeah. And it's just it just seems that this and uh, what was the other um, big stat that Toronto is is uh, hiring more. Um, tech grads and anywhere else in mm -hmm. North America. So yeah. it's a big it, part of our Amazon bid and it's, for Amazon right. and H2Q. Yeah. yeah. Some mm -hmm. people are crossing their fingers that it'll, it'll yeah. land here and others I'm told aren't. that decision is coming soonish. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Um, 
So how is all this technology, this buzz, how is that creating opportunities mm -hmm. for our city's growth? I think it's one of the most interesting questions for planning right now is, you know, is it going to be good for us or is it going to be bad for us? Is it going to drive even more urban living because it'll be convenient and easy? Or is it going to release us from the constraints of having to actually be in a place to work? And, and you know, this whole idea of remote technology and, and, you know, not always living where you or living near where you work. So I think the jury's still out on that. I'm intrigued about okay. it. I think one of the things that um, the whole opportunity that um, Sidewalk Toronto is bringing is a really, it's really shining a light on this question about where are the gains? You know, how can we get more efficient? How can we get more affordable? You know, I think on that question about family housing, you know, one of the things that I'm really intrigued by with Sidewalk is this idea of modular prefabricated housing, um, which is responding to affordability. You know, it's much faster to be able to build it uh, and more, you know, scaling in terms of how you actually do it, but also probably a lot more flexible. You know, the idea that it's modular and could be reconfigured. I think that's one of the biggest things that I worry about in terms of the... The housing stock we've built so massively in such an intense period of time, which is predominantly small units, and you know how how flexible is that? How much can it evolve? You know how much like the old low-rise neighborhoods that have houses that go from rooming houses to flats to singles, and so you know on a bigger scale, you'd want to think we have that kind of flexibility. So I think that's one of the really important opportunities for technology. The whole mobility side of technology is the part that's really fascinating too. You know, are we ever going to actually? I'd love to not own a car. I would love to. I do own one and I drive much more than I wish I did. Um, but I think that's the, the real place of interest in terms of the whole last mile, you know, how we get to the fixed infrastructure that we're building in terms of these transit lines, which we absolutely need. But, you know, the one trip, you know, the integrated kind of idea that you can either get in an in a, uh, autom autonomous vehicle that you share to get to the subway or you can get a bike share or you know, all of these things on seamless apps, I think that's really an interesting So how would that impact the way that we plan our cities uh, by having, say, yeah. autonomous vehicle or the well, last Well, I think mile? that uh, at, the, at the base, it doesn't change a thing, which is that we need a really fine-grained network of connections, and you need it for all modes, and it needs to be pretty easy to navigate, and it has to be continuous. So I think that doesn't change. I think the people, the thing that people are getting really excited about, I'm one of those people, is that just the amount of space and real estate that is given over to cars um, who have to be that have to be parked is exciting. So the whole idea of parking lanes, I mean, all of this is end state. There's a whole place in between, but I think that. Um, the idea of being able to, to one of the biggest issues that we're facing, which is the TO core effort um, to kind of catch up to all the growth that happened downtown and the same in Young Neglington through Midtown and Focus, is that we had massive influx of population without the, the corollary additions to our public realm, like even just sidewalks, you know, are really difficult. To, so, so can we reclaim some of that space and turn it back over to people? That's pretty exciting. You know, can we make people's lives easier, but also make our environment more supportive of community living. So on the topic uh, of transit and mobility, I, you know, I know that transit is a perennial concern for everyone yeah. in the city, and, yeah. and uh, I don't know whether it, it still can enjoy the moniker of, you know, the TTC, the better way. It may not be the better yeah. way, but it, it's the only way for, for yeah. a lot of people. But, you know, amidst all that, we, we forget that the efforts our governments 
uh, and stakeholders have made to advance the system have they've they've done quite a bit of work. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking a little bit about um, the work at uh, Eglinton, the Eglinton mm-hmm. Crosstown, which is a massive, massive infrastructure mm-hmm. project. Um, you want to, I don't know, you want to just shed some light on some of the advances mm-hmm. in transit and mobility. Well, I think what's interesting about Eglinton Connects is it's a hybrid. You know, it's part subway, effectively, and part LRT, and I think that's a really responsive um, approach. Uh, so I think that, obviously, many people would say if money were no object, subways are a really strong thing to be able to build. Uh, LRTs are complicated just in terms of the amount of space they require and, and the kind of impact that they have in some levels, on, uh, particularly when you're trying to run them as a kind of regional or at least long distance transit service. You know, I remember we were working for the city of Toronto in uh, Mimico by the lake. And so there it was part of the waterfront LRT kind of question. And so the Queen Street car runs through the Mimico by the lake neighborhood right now. And it serves, it's pretty frustrating if you're trying to get from Mimico to downtown on the streetcar, it takes a long time. But if you're trying to do your shopping, you know, or take your kids to music class on the streetcar, then it's pretty nice when it stops every few blocks. So, so it's that 10 in the surface-oriented transit feels like it should be local, but when you're putting it in a dedicated right-of-way, you're truly trying to make it sort of super regional. So so I would hope that we get back to a balance of being able to do both. I mean, I think the downtown relief line that we were talking about before is a fundamental piece of infrastructure. You know, it's pretty amazing. The densities in the greater Toronto area are not that much different, you know, on a regional level from London. So if you think about the amount of opportunity you have to get on a tube line in London. Sure, everyone who travels to London or Paris, they come back with uh, envy and... But I always thought it was because our densities were just too low to support it, but it's not really the case. Is that right? Yeah, it's not really the case. I think it's about model, too. You know, there's a whole opportunity to think about, and I know that the new chief um, executive officer at Metrolinx brings a lot of that thinking that uh, the transit provider is a kind of business case, a business service, and and how can we use that to maximize the public interest, um, but you know maybe in some cases through more private delivery. It's a whole conversation. So that's one of the key themes that we're pulling on too in this symposium. Yeah, big, big question. And actually, just really quickly on that whole idea of the Eglinton Crosstown, one of the things that I think is really great is the, the latest study, which is for the Eglinton East piece, which will go out from the Golden Mile area out ultimately, I think, to the University of Toronto campus. And, and thinking about how that creates opportunity in all kinds of ways, you know, for not just mobility, but also community building and, you know, how you preserve that really robust but probably somewhat fragile ecosystem of small businesses that uh, have come, you know, up in the sort of little strip you know, individually owned strip, you know, the sort of 60s version of the main street. So, so what do you mean yeah. by, how, how would that sort of galvanize or well, incentivize I think, yeah, yeah, I think building? the question is, you know, what's the, the mix between the kind of rebuilding that we're seeing on the avenues, um, how much of that, and so, you know, obviously LRT has some desire to have more density around it, but it's not as much of, an, of a kind of requirement as around subways. So, so I think there's probably a little more flexibility to think about how the LRT can find that balance between being a kind of cross-city service and something that really serves the community. So I'll be interested to see there, because in that case, you're not trying to thread it through a tiny little right-of-way like Lakeshore Boulevard. On, on uh, You've got a big right-of-way to work with and more space to try to accomplish these whole variety of objectives, create public realm. 
So clearly, you and your colleagues and everyone in the planning and maybe the broader industry are really seem to be really excited about mm -hmm. Toronto's future and everything Absolutely. that it has going for it and the opportunities for the future. Uh, what uh, is there one th one aspect or one theme that you're most excited about for the city's future, or is it a combination of? of, of yeah, I don't energy. think there's one thing. I think that it's really just there's a convergence of so many strong factors here okay. that, uh, that I really feel like whatever the future holds, we'll find good ways to respond. And what so, about your yeah. concerns? I know a lot of people have concerns. Yeah, about I think my concerns would be very similar to what most would express. I mean, obviously, and we're going to have Richard Florida is going to be part of the symposium. He's very rightly talking a lot about um, exclusion. You know, obviously, that's a significant concern. We can't... Um, one of the great things about diversity is that when it works, it promotes tolerance um, and opportunity. Um, when it doesn't work, which we're seeing uh, not in great uh, sets of, of um, incidents, but certainly on the world stage, that it's a pretty fragile thing. You have to really be careful about it. And you have to make sure that affordability, we don't become just uh, um, too successful. You know, this whole urban agglomeration is fantastic for certain things, uh, like economic activity. Um, but uh, and in some ways opportunity, but it also has a real tendency to create haves and have-nots, and that's something we have to be laser-focused on how we continue to bring opportunity up across the board. It's a good way to sum it up. Um, I don't want to end up on a, a down note, but just reflecting back on everything you mentioned earlier, um, thanks again for sharing your thoughts and your enthusiasm about the city. I think it My really pleasure. helps to set the stage for future podcast discussions about many of the city's positive attributes, but also about some of the challenges um, that we're going to face as, we, as it continues to grow. So really glad you could be part of this discussion. Thanks. Thanks again. I'm delighted to have had the chance. Thanks for asking. Okay. Terrific. Me.